0: President Trump's first official trip overseas was a year and a half ago, and it was to Saudi Arabia. As soon as he stepped off Air Force One, the visit felt like a celebration. There was a five-story image of Trump projected on the Ritz-Carlton Hotel where he was staying. There was even a traditional sword dance that went a little bit viral. Journalists shot these videos on their iPhones, Trump and members of his cabinet swaying awkwardly to the music, flanked by men in white robes. Rex Tillerson is there. Remember Rex Tillerson? After that party in Riyadh, the goodwill between the United States and the Saudi royal family seemed to spread from Washington outward to billionaires and business tycoons. When the Saudi crown prince came to the United States this spring, he made sure photographers captured him grabbing coffee at Starbucks with Michael Bloomberg. He strolled through Google's headquarters with Sergey Brin. And then the crown prince ended up on the cover of Time magazine. Looking back now, there's a surreal quality to these trips. Because in the background, always, was dissent.
1: Is the kingdom of Saudi
2: Arabia really on a path to reform and moderation?
0: At the same time the crown prince was on this goodwill tour in the U.S., a Saudi journalist named Jamal Khashoggi, was speaking out against the royal family.
2: Um, Jamal, let me start with you. You've compared your crown prince to Putin, to Iran's supreme leader. You've said he's creating, quote, an interesting form of
1: dictatorship. How so?
0: I still see him as a reformer, but he is gathering all power
1: within his hand.
0: What Jamal Khashoggi said just a few months ago, it's eerie now. He's talking about journalists imprisoned, afraid to speak out. But as we speak today, There are Saudi intellectuals and journalists jailed. Now, nobody will dare to speak and criticize the reform they like. — Now Khashoggi himself is reported dead after meetings at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. President Trump's dispatched his secretary of state to Riyadh to figure out what happened. And for Saudi Arabia and the United States, there's still a big, looming question — what next? Dexter Filkins is here today. He has been covering this story for The New Yorker. We're going to talk to him in a second. But first, we're going to check in with Slate's own Jim Newell. He's in Texas. He's covering Senate race today, one you probably think you know enough about. Jim's going to convince you and me to care about the debate between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz tonight. You are listening to the very first official episode of Slate's new daily news podcast. It's an experiment for us, a chance to see if we can answer your big questions at the end of each day. So stay with us. Hey, Jim.
1: How do I sound?
0: You sound great. Good. Jim Newell covers Congress for Slate. I gave him a ring at his hotel room down in Texas, where he's covering what looks like the last debate in one of the flashier Senate races this term. Ted Cruz, the Republican incumbent, versus Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic upstart. You know about this race, right? Cruz doesn't have a lot of friends in D.C. He's been a senator there since 2013. And Beto O'Rourke has become a liberal darling. He's courted the press. He's gone on Facebook Live a lot. And he's smashed fundraising records. But he still isn't that great of a bet to win the Senate race.
1: Beto has fallen into a hole a little bit in the polls. And people are already starting to write him off for good reason. He needs to make something happen in the debate tonight to at least have a chance, I think. So we're going to see if he can do it.
0: Yeah, I feel like I've heard so much about the Ted Cruz, Beto O'Rourke race. So what are you looking for as you watch these two guys go at it tonight?
1: I think I'm looking to see if uh, O'Rourke changes his strategy a little bit. He, you know, so far has been uh, pursuing a very inspirational message uh, and trying to fire up the base and and telling everyone this is what we can achieve. If we all turn out to vote, we can turn Texas blue. But I think he really needs now to undermine Ted Cruz if he wants to pull this off.
0: And Cruz is a championship debater, right, from his time at Princeton?
1: Yes, he is. And uh, he's very proud of that. His debating style, you can see the college debating training in him because he's always trying to win each individual point. He's not necessarily trying to come off as a, as a very endearing figure to the public, but he's just trying to win every little argument. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how well he does tonight
0: what do you think of the tools in his toolbox?
1: I think he'll just probably pursue what's obviously been working pretty well for him. I think he'll just try to link Beto to Fox News items that rile everyone up, you know, the left wing mob and uh, how they hate police. And he's gone after O'Rourke for supporting NFL players who take a knee during the national anthem, all of these sort of culture war issues that are, are a little bit risable when you see him do it all, it just seems a little uh, trivial. But they work pretty well in a red state where they're, you know, if you can turn your base out, then you're going to beat any Democrat who shows up.
0: So for Beto O'Rourke, who's behind in the polls, but has a whole lot of money in the bank and a lot of excitement from outside of Texas, what's your strategy here?
1: I think you have to take it to Ted Cruz. You know, there's already some negative talk surrounding Beto right now that maybe he is just trying to play to a national base to improve his fundraising so that even if he doesn't win this race, he can become a martyr and then he can run for president. I think it'll be interesting to see if Beto uh, challenges that, you know, if he really tries some things, if he takes some risks in this debate with Ted Cruz to try and save his Texas Senate race and isn't obviously looking forward to the next step.
0: So you're looking to see if Beto O'Rourke is playing to Texas or if he's playing to New York and California. Correct. So you're not just there to cover this debate. You're there to do something else. Tell me about that.
1: So after the debate and uh, a little story on the Texas Senate race, I'm going up to the suburbs of Dallas, which were once a Republican stronghold, but are swinging blue like a lot of suburbs around the country. So the, the incumbent I'm going to cover there is Pete Sessions, who's been around for about almost a couple of decades now. He's a very powerful House Republican. He's head of the Rules Committee, which is the gatekeeper that determines what goes on the House floor. Uh, He led the NRCC, the Republicans' Campaign Committee, for a couple of cycles. And he's never really had a hard race, but suddenly his district is becoming Democratic now. It voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. So I'm trying to uh, look at him as the prism to see what it's like being a candidate who's never really had to think about reelection before, who is now trying to trying to pivot to the center, but be, maybe being a little clumsy with it. A lot of people
0: have looked at the Ted Cruz, Beto O'Rourke race, and they've talked about Texas going blue. And I guess what you're saying is Texas is going blue in these much smaller races,
1: yeah, if you look at the metropolitan areas in Texas, the suburbs, the inner suburban rings, especially, are turning blue. It's happening in Dallas. It's happening in Houston. So there are a couple of races in Texas that weren't really in play until this cycle. So I think that's a good way to measure uh, how Beto can still help the Democrats in November, if he, even if he doesn't win his own race. If he can gin up enough enthusiasm to turn people out in some of these House districts that are newly competitive— And that could pick up Democrats a couple of seats that they would need to take the majority.
0: So the enthusiasm that Beto O'Rourke might be generating with a debate like this, it's not just about Beto O'Rourke's campaign. It's about whether he brings enough Democrats out to the polls that will affect people like Sessions. Yeah. Jim, when you're on trips like this, what do you eat?
1: Uh, Well, now that I'm in Texas, I intend to eat only beef uh, for every meal, breakfast, lunch and dinner for the next week.
0: You're going paleo. Yep. Good luck with that, Jim.
1: Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, back to our big question today. With the reported death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of Saudi operatives, what kind of diplomatic moves does Washington have left? Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Riyadh today, meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. It was Good. Good.
2: Good. I hope we don't have jet lag (laughs) in a little while, but so far it's Good. They
0: greeted each other really awkwardly. The crown prince, who goes by his initials, MBS, tells Pompeo, I hope you don't have jet lag. Pompeo nods and smiles, thanks the prince for hosting him. Even though many suspect it is MBS himself who is behind this diplomatic crisis. I asked the New Yorker's Dexter Filkins to explain what could possibly happen next year, because Dexter knows the Middle East, but also because Dexter knows Jamal Khashoggi.
2: I, we just talked on the phone, like, about a, three or four days before he was killed. Or we talked—we corresponded a re Sometimes I would see him in Washington, and, and uh, other times I would see him when he came to New York. And when he came to New York, he always wanted to go to Katz's Deli and uh, to, for a big Reuben sandwich. You know, And so we'd have a big—you know, we'd have Reubens together, and, you know, they're, they're at Katz's. They're, they're so large uh, that we'd have kind of a sleepy conversation afterwards.
0: So something that's been on my mind is— in the last few weeks, we've been learning a lot about Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi, but we've heard two things that seem contradictory on their face, which is that he was an advisor to the Saudi royal family, but he was also a critic of the Saudi royal family. Since you knew him, what can you tell us about that?
2: Well, he was he was part of the establishment. I mean, even—and right, I think he became estranged from that establishment. And, and that, you know, it's kind of the way it is if you're a journalist in Saudi Arabia— if you're going to work, you kind of work with the state's approval. So, it's it's almost, you know, necessarily you're a member of the establishment. So, in his case, what happened was he, he became increasingly critical uh, in print of the monarchy. And, like, we're, we're talking so mild in Saudi Arabia, so mild as to be undetectable by like us. Like what? Um, urging him to move faster on reforms that that kind of thing. Um, that was
0: considered criticism.
2: Yeah, and so he in in 2016, he was he was told to stop writing. And so he stopped writing. And he so he basically sat at home for many months when for 2017. And then when the—if you all remember the Qatar crisis, uh, when that happened, when, when uh, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman decided uh, to—he announced a, a blockade of Qatar, uh, you know, and claiming that they were supporting terrorism, etc., uh, along with the Emiratis, they called Jamal and, and kind of invited him to start writing again. And they said, you know— we we uh, would appreciate if you'd start writing again, and hmm. you could you can highlight uh, kind of you know our country's you know brave position on the on the crisis. And so he took that as he he, he thought I, I'm not going to do that. Uh, they they they're kind of in, they're giving me a chance again, but they want me to be a mouthpiece, and I'm not going to do that. So I'm so so he left. He left the country. This is about a year ago. He decided that that if he said no, then. They would take his passport, and then he'd be unable to travel. And then he'd be basically stuck uh, in Saudi Arabia, unable to write, unable to move. So he just just left, and I think he pretty much left in a hurry. You know, he landed in Washington, and he he started writing for the Washington Post. But but that's kind of—it was a slow—you know, it was a slow uh, evolution away from the establishment and away from MBS. And then I think as, you know, as MBS became more autocratic and dictatorial— Khashoggi became more critical. And from the United States, he could be more critical. So I think that's that, that was kind of the evolution.
0: You mentioned another name there that we're hearing a lot in the last few weeks, MBS. And yes. for people who don't know about Mohammed bin Salman, he's the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, controls yes. a lot of the levers of power there. You chronicled his rise in an article this spring. Yes. He did a lot of, well... The West has covered the fact that he did a lot to kind of open Saudi Arabia up or wanted to. Yes. Um, but at the same time, something else was going on. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, and that, that's the part I focused on. What, what I noticed, for, first of all, and, and this started about a year ago, Uh, There there were kind of a series of crises around the Middle East, and they were basically being instigated by MBS. And some of these things kind of came and went in the news very quickly, so they're kind of easy to forget. But there was this super bizarre incident where Saad Hariri, the prime minister of Lebanon, was called back, uh, was was called to Riyadh and more or less held under house arrest for a couple of days. He was imprisoned. He was imprisoned. He couldn't leave super strange. Uh, and, and, and kind of with echoes of, of what we're seeing now, there were these strange statements coming out, of, uh, coming out of Saudi Arabia. He's not a prisoner. He's free to leave anytime he wants. In fact, what we learned was that, or what I learned in, in my piece was MBS himself physically abused Hariri. He slapped him around, he basically beat him up. Um, and so I, I, what I saw and what I wrote about was this kind of pattern of very rash and impetuous and often violent behavior uh, kind of driven by this, you know, um, unrestrained, impulsive 33-year-old who suddenly has all the power uh, in the country at his disposal.
0: And there was this other bizarre thing where he imprisoned – a bunch of wealthy Saudis at the Ritz Carlton.
2: Wow, there was that too. That that was that was really. Uh, I mean, what now that we look back, uh, what what happened to Jamal Khashoggi is kind of more intelligible. If if you remember at the at the Ritz Carlton, which is this fabulous uh, five star hotel in in Riyadh,
0: it's where Trump stayed when yeah, he went
2: there. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing, and it's it's where the the economic conference that. Uh, was going to be held that everyone's canceling on now, but um, it's this beautiful hotel and uh, a- MBS basically imprisoned. Um, you know, it, it was a kind of gilded, gilded prison, but he imprisoned uh, dozens of members of the Saudi establishment and royal family, and essentially said, you know, you're not leaving until you give us until you give us your money. Uh, and a lot of those people, it's true, like a lot of those, a lot of those people that that were kind of locked up. In, in the Ritz-Carlton had abused their positions, or, you know, corruption is endemic in the, in, the, in the government in Saudi Arabia and in the royal family, but they had sort of, they had abused their positions, but there was absolutely no due process, there was nothing, they basically sat them down and said, you're not leaving here until you sign over X percentage of your wealth. As we saw, many of those people were also abused physically, and, and so and 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 you know things like uh, pe- people were beaten I think people were there were reports of people uh, being waterboarded there were reports of of people uh, receiving electrical shocks even so and, and some of that stuff was kind of unclear but it was really really heavy-handed and so MBS was able to, to say I'm cleaning up you know i'm i'm against corruption and i'm cleaning up the country but um really really heavy handed
0: yeah what's interesting to me is that you actually talked to some folks who basically said well he did what he had to do there right he had to get corruption under control so how else would you do it and you know these were professors in the united states
2: i that the thing that kind of baffled me and frankly it was it was the reason i I I went out and did the the story that I did earlier this year was I was baffled by that, his his kind of extraordinary cheering section in the United States. Um, Lots of members of the American media, academia, the business establishment, Hollywood. You know, when MBS came to the, came to the United States early this year, he was he was treated like the God King. You cover know, of um, Time magazine, oh, cover of Time magazine, sixty He's, minutes. Yeah, like and and he was he was like a rock star. Uh, you know, Wall Street, Hollywood, everywhere. Silicon Valley, they love him in Silicon Valley.
0: And Tom Friedman lavished him with praise. Yes,
2: and I think there's a there's a kind of a look there's a there's a tension here, which is, and I and I think MBS has spelled this out very articulately himself the the world is moving away from oil and oil is all we have and so in in 30 years we're we're nothing we're we're back in the desert um if if we don't change really fast so i it's fallen to me uh to turn this giant aircraft carrier around and i'm gonna do it and i'm gonna do it quickly and i'm gonna do it at all costs that's what i mean that you know, that's the kind of—that's the real rosy picture. I mean, that's the sort of best that you can say. I think Saudi Arabia is a—it's an absolute monarchy. They're—they are they can do whatever they want. And so what we've—what we've seen is we've seen the positive stuff. We've seen this—the young modernizer try to, you know, try to sort of bring his country into the future. But at the same time, we've seen him just smash a lot of furniture.
0: Well, and Jamal Khashoggi was making the point that— that's great that you want to open the country up but it's all in how you do it
2: absolutely and I and that's the thing about Jamal was that he he wasn't calling for an the overthrow of the monarchy he he was just telling them like be peaceful about it and and be deliberative and be respectful and you don't imprison your your critics um that's it I mean that's like mild stuff uh, that's like nothing that's every newspaper and and cable news station in America all day long. I mean, that's, that's how uh, kind of – that's how sensitive MBS is to criticism.
0: I feel like the irony here is that MBS, he may not have wanted all the social reform, but he does really want economic reform. And now this event really places – all of that in jeopardy.
2: I think that's right. I think that's—this is catastrophic for for the, the royal family and hence for the future of Saudi Arabia. I don't know what they're going to do, frankly. And I—it I, I it makes me, you know, the, the— it makes me wonder what MBS's future is. He's only the crown prince. Um, King Salman has shown—he's already removed two crown princes. He's certainly shown himself to be willing to do that. And I wonder if— and I'm I'm really just wondering here because there aren't any indications yet, but I just wonder if he won't, that the pressure will not become so intense that he feels like he has to make a change. Uh, I think the I think the problem there is that anyone who could be seen as a rival to MBS has been sidelined or uh, or imprisoned or just run out of town, and so I don't, I don't know who it would be.
0: Huh? As an American who's sitting over here and you know may not know a lot about Saudi Arabia why should this internal drama in Saudi Arabia worry me
2: well I I think you know you, you could eat you know the, the the first kind of easy answer would be oil you know and and sure if if uh, Saudi Arabia goes up in flames uh, the, the the price of gasoline at the pump will go way way up and that that's you know that's inevitable I think but I, I think that the The real disturbing thing would be if if the monarchy falls apart, um, which I think ultimately is what MBS is worried about. MBS's entire campaign to modernize the country is to save the the monarchy. It's to save the royal family. If that were to if that were to to abruptly crumble. Um, there would be chaos across the Middle East. It would engulf the entire region. And, and it would be I think it would be terrifying in the extreme. And that would inevitably drag us in. I mean, I, that's not something that the United States could ignore.
0: So Mike Pompeo's in Riyadh right now. You're if you're President Trump, given <laughs> this mess, you know, what, what are your options here?
2: I think the options are all really bad. The, the I spoke to somebody yesterday who told me that they're they're desperate inside the White House about this situation. The Trump administration has based its entire strategy in the Middle East on one man, and that's the 33-year-old crown prince. MBS. Um, MBS. Their entire strategy. And, I, I mean, I've had those conversations. They say, you know, we took out them. this is—I uh, uh, spoke to somebody earlier this year— uh, who was on the National Security Council and he said uh, uh, Jared and I you know two days after inauguration we we took the map of the Middle East and we rolled it out on a table and we said okay what do, what do we got here you know we got we got Israel over here and we got we got Saudi Arabia and those are our two pillars well one of those pillars is like is is looking really shaky right now and they've again they've they've put all their money on this one man so I think they're panicking and I I don't that's going to be a very difficult conversation that Secretary Pompeo has, and I I don't know what's going to come out of it, because I don't think anyone's going to buy this cover story that he was killed by accident. Um, how was he killed by accident? I mean, they flew a pathologist up with the 15 assassins, or the the, the team of people that I think is pretty clear killed him. There was a, there was a pathologist with them. Um, Allegedly
0: what, with a bone saw.
2: With a bone saw. And, and what, so I don't think anybody's going to buy that. And so... And I and I think uh, my guess is secretary Pompeo will probably tell them that but this is gonna be a really difficult because uh, I no no lie is gonna ultimately succeed here and the the longer they string this out the uglier it's gonna be
0: you mentioned having conversations with people close to the White House can you tell me more about that about what those conversations were like
2: yeah I'm just I'm just thinking about what what I I had a couple conversations yesterday um and I'm I'm Trying to recall the most interesting things that were being sent, it's it, it mostly along the lines of, um, well, what do we do? And I and I think that and I don't think anybody knows what to do. And I you know everybody would like this thing to go away, uh, but that that it's a, it's a terrible. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a terrible problem for Saudi Arabia itself, but it's a terrible problem for the Trump administration as well. I mean, they've treated MBS like a hero. He's welcome at the White House. They can't bring him to the White House now. I mean, I mean everybody everybody. I mean we've all got short memories, you know, so so maybe all this will go away, but it certainly doesn't seem that way right now. How can you how can you bring a a a country's leader to the White House who the evidence overwhelmingly shows uh murdered a a a green card holder who is a columnist for the Washington Post. Um I don't think you can look past that.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, Dexter. Thank you. This is the debut episode of What Next, Slate's new daily news show. We are piloting this thing in public for the next several weeks, kicking the tires. We're going to be tweaking it a bit each day, and we need you to tell us what you think. You can do that by emailing us whatnext at slate.com. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Special shout out for this first show goes to TJ Raphael, who made sure you can all find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you tomorrow. Which is why we created What Next. It's a daily nude, po- nude podcast. <laughs> That would be like so much more interesting. We're totally naked and you can't see us.
2: <laughs> for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call.